0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.
1: All right, let's open in prayer and we'll uh, go to our lesson this morning. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Thank you for redeeming us by your grace, the sinners that we are, to come before you in your presence to glorify and praise you. And we thank you that you've given us your word and instructed us how to live. And I pray that as we consider these things, how we are to to live in your church and how your church is to be governed, may you give us insight and wisdom that Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray, Amen. amen. All right, so we are in chapter 31 of the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the chapter called of Synods and Councils, and if you have a copy, uh, now would be a great time to pull it out. I don't know if there are any um, hymnals sitting around. There are not any up here that I see. The hymnals have copies in the back. You can try to pull it up on your phone. Um, We are just a few chapters from the end, and in March we will be wrapping up this, and there'll be a couple other things that we'll be doing in the interim, and then the plan will be to go on to the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism after this, and we'll work through the catechism after we've gone through the confession. So... Um, we're ch- this is chapter 31 and just a reminder, big picture. This is our doctrinal statement as the Presbyterian church in America. This is what all of your officers have to affirm. The Westminster confession of faith, the Westminster larger catechism and Westminster shorter catechism. All three of these, we have to say, this is biblical. We have to believe that this is what the Bible teaches. And so we're teaching you because we believe this is right and biblical. It's not required for membership or anything of that sort, but this helps you understand the thrust of what we believe as a church and why we believe it. And that's why we're unpacking this and we think it's. it's. It's greatly edifying for us all. And this this time we're looking at chapter 31 of Synods and Councils, and it comes uh, on the heels of talking about church censures. Uh, discipline in the church, and that comes on the heels of talking about the Lord's Supper and baptism, because these things belong to the church, and that, that came on the heels of the chapter on the church. So we're talking about the church. What is the church? The ordinances, the sacraments that belong to the church and the Lord's Supper and baptism. We talked about discipline, which is inextricably tied to the sacraments, and now we're taking a step further back. Uh, how is the church run? What is the government of the church to look like from uh, based upon biblical Principles, and so of synods and councils uh, is the title of this chapter that gets us into church government. Uh, I'll walk you through a few resources that I have, of course um, and I'll pass these out uh, general resources, all these great systematic theologies instead of in, including Michael Horton on there um, so church government, a couple resources. I think this book, how Jesus runs the Church little kind of cheesy. It's how to run the church, cross it out, how Jesus runs the church. A little little corny, but I think this is the best single contemporary volume on uh, church government. Um, I think every PCA teaching elder and ruling elder, I think it should be required reading for them. It's fantastic. I've actually gone through this in like small groups before in the PCA churches, and people love it and eat it up. It's written from a PCA perspective with our theological distinctives and our book of church order in mind, um, and it is so, so helpful in understanding Um, all the things we're talking about today. This is very good, accessible, practical, um, and very helpful and encouraging. So I'll pass that around. I highly recommend if you're anything interested at all in church government or want to learn more about why we do what we do, that is the place to start. Um, Here's the other one you can go to, um, The Church of Christ by James Bannerman. This is a classic Scottish Presbyterian work on the matter. Uh, Very good very thorough, um, but very, very good. So I will pass that around. You can thumb through. Uh, disclaimer, I haven't read that one cover to cover. And these last two I'm going to recommend, I, uh, I recently got them in the mail, and I've worked through them mostly, but I can't say I've read every single word. Uh, this one's Samuel Miller, Presbyterianism. It's history, doctrine, government, and worship. Very brief, but really good and practical. It's kind of like the, the version of... Um, Uh, Guy Waters' book that uh, was written 150 years ago. Um, Very good and still very relevant. And then the last one that I have, it's basically a pamphlet. Uh, Thomas Dwight Witherspoon, The Five Points of Presbyterianism. Uh, Not the Five Points of Calvinism, Five Points of Presbyterianism, uh, talking about our government. And it's only, what, 22 pages. Very great little pamphlet. Uh, it's similar. We have a booklet out in the, the narthex called um, What is Church Government? That's the same kind of thing as this. It's more contemporary. This is an older one. Uh, those are for free. If you want to grab one, you are more than welcome to it. Um, so very very good, very um, punchy to the point and helpful. So I'll give you those resources. And there's, there's many, many others um, and many that would bore you if I mentioned them to you. So I won't if these didn't bore you enough. All right. So let's go into the text of chapter 31 of the Confession. If you have your copies, again, pull them out. You can pull it up on your phone. If you don't have a hard copy uh, with you, uh, just search Westminster Confession of Faith. There's many places online. There's apps, um, all sorts of things. If there's a hymnal near you, it's also in the back, but I did not see many hymnals out this morning. So let's just work through these. We'll start with section one. Actually, no, sorry, step back. Um, Our chapter 31 is actually an amended version. Uh, it was amended in 1788 by the first Presbyterian General Assembly uh, that met in America. And I'll mention as we go along the, the big change they made. But basically, uh, the view of church and state that they had in, uh, in Britain was different from how we understand church and state in America. And so they reflected that in, their, in the confession. And you know, people can say, well, does that mean... Uh, your theology of church government changes based on your political environment, and um, maybe it uh, shouldn't. But uh, we do believe this is the more biblical and correct version. So we do think the confession has been perfected um, by the American Presbyterians, and I'll call and I'll just call your attention to it once we get there. So let's uh, let me read chapter one or section one of chapter thirty-one, and then we'll uh, we'll launch into some commentary. For the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods and councils, or councils. And it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches, by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them for the edification and not for destruction, to appoint such assemblies, and to convene them to, get to convene together in them as often as they shall judge it expedient for the good of the church." All right, so we're talking about synods and councils, meetings of church leaders. And we start off with the statement for the better government and further edification of the church. So it's laying out the church government, but it's saying this is for the better government and for, what was the language? The further edification of the church. What they're not saying is that for the existence of the church, we must have Presbyterian church government. They're saying for the better government and for the further edification. So church government, we don't believe, does not belong to the, the Latin phrase, the essay, the essence, the, the existence of the church, but it belongs to the bene essay, the well-being of the church. We believe Presbyterianism is good and it, belong, and it leads to a flourishing of the church, but we don't think it's essential to be Presbyterian, to have a, a true church. So that's the distinction they're making here. It is better to be Presbyterian because it's biblical and because there's lots of practical benefits. But it doesn't mean if that you're not, if you're not Presbyterian, you're not a true church. Does that distinction make sense? Okay. And I hope uh, you know, this is a, a position of, of humility, but also saying, look, this is, this is an important and a good for the church. Uh, are there
2: any other uh, I'll be... Westminster Confession chapters that they would call uh, for the well-being versus essential.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would think so. Um, they don't say it that way because it's not uh, has it hasn't been as debated in that way. But things like yeah, oaths and vows. Um, And we would say the sacraments are essential to be a true church, but we also understand there's different understandings of of baptism, for example. And we wouldn't say Baptists are not a true church because they don't baptize infants. We think they're wrong, um, but we think they're still a true church. So that distinction is going on throughout, um, but they note it here particularly. Um, But there are essential things as well that the confession speaks of. So this is for the bene essay, the well-being of the church, not for the essence of the church. It says, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. Well, commonly called in the 1600s, right? Synods or councils. Um, so there need to be these s- assemblies, these meetings. So these two words, synods, uh, that is a, basically a word straight from the Greek um, that means synodos which comes from sin, which means with, and hodas, which means way. So those who are walking with others on the way, people who you are walking with, uh, it's a synod of fellow like-minded Christians to come together, to walk together. So that's what a synod is. It's a meeting of Christians who are walking together. Um, in college, we had a ministry called Synodia. The campus ministry put on Synodia and they thought it was this trendy, like, hey, we're using this Greek word to talk about Christian fellowship and all that. I'm like, hey, Presbyterians have you beat, right? We have synods. Um, and still, historically, Christian, uh, Presbyterians have had synods. Our brothers and sisters in the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church Their big, uh, what we call general assembly, their big meeting of the whole denomination is called the general synod every year. So that language is still used. And councils, you know what the the term council means. It's a meeting of um, those who are ruling, those who are, are, they're coming together to confer and to conduct business. So there ought to be these assemblies in the church. Um, this idea first comes uh, comes most clearly to us in Acts. In Acts 15, there is what's called the Jerusalem Council. We call it the Jerusalem Council. So it's a meeting of the apostles and the elders there. I'm just going to pull it out. If you have your Bible, you can pull it out briefly just to show you what's happening here and where we get this idea from. Acts chapter 15, there is a problem in the church. It begins in chapter one, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so there are people teaching, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. To be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Well, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they had a local debate about this. They wouldn't stop teaching it. And they said, hey, we've got to go with the apostles and the elders and have a meeting. We need to have an assembly. We need to deal with this issue. This is a very problematic issue. And so the apostles and the elders gathered to do this. Now, this is important because here the apostles are functioning as elders in the church. This is what the elders do. They gather in these kinds of assemblies to deal with, we'll see, cases of controversy and conflict and matters of faith. And we see here reflected like what Paul, uh, what Peter said in his epistle, uh, I exhort the, my fellow elders. He considered himself an elder. And in this assembly, the apostles were acting as elders of the church. Now it was very possible the elder, the apostles could have gotten together and said, Hey, the Lord has told us you should not do this. You should not teach this. This is wrong. This is an error. But what did they do? They gathered with the elders and together they hashed out the problem and dealt with it theologically, biblically, based on God's word and revelation. And so they're setting for us an example, an example of this is how you deal with the controversies and the conflicts, the matters of faith that arise. We need to have the elders come together, a regional representation to deal with these issues. And so we can go on and see what happens. And they record some of the floor debates, the speeches that are going on, and they, they, uh, uh, Luke records in Acts for us what happened uh, at the end, the letter that was written and distributed. And this letter was an authoritative statement of the leaders of the church saying, this is what is right. This is true. So this is where we get, get the idea from that there ought to be assemblies. We see it in Acts. We see this happening in live time in the early churches. There's controversy and conflict. Synods, councils, assemblies met together to, uh, to handle this, particularly this one issue that we see in Scripture, So that's where they're getting this idea. There ought to be these assemblies to gather in such a way. Uh, questions, comments about um, Acts 15, this idea of having these assemblies in general? Okay, we'll get in, into particulars, don't worry. All right, so uh, we're all on board. There ought to be these assemblies of the church, these synods, these councils, whatever you want to call them. And I will say right here at the end of this, where this colon is in our version, the American version, there was a a period. And this was the end of the first section of the original. Um, And I I won't go into all the details here, Um, but this is the original here. And you see the period there. And then it goes into a second paragraph. Basically what they did, they deleted the second paragraph and they put it up. Uh, the, the replacement material into the first paragraph. So here they say uh, in the original, who calls these assemblies? That's the question. Who calls them and brings them together? The original question was magistrates may do this. The civil government is the one who calls them. But the American version is this. And again, I don't, we don't want to go through the language, so I'm going to take that off. Um, but basically the answer is magistrates are to call it. The civil government calls these synods, uh, which is not what we saw in Acts 15. That's not the biblical example we see. And I think we do a better job in our language with this. And the language is this, it belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches to convene them together to appoint the assemblies and convene them together. So what we say, it is up to the leaders of the churches, the leaders of the local congregations. So we have implicitly a statement that there are leaders of local congregations, overseers of the local congregations. These overseers of the local congregations need to call a regional assembly. It is up to them to do this for the well-being of all of the churches under them. And so our answer, the initial answer was the civil magistrate calls these synods, these assemblies, and our answer is no, it is up to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, to call them for the good of the church. Um, there's several things here. By virtue of their office, the power which Christ hath given them, uh, this is part of their duty and their call is they're elders of the local church, but they're also called to deal with broader uh, issues more broadly in the church. Um, that is part of the call given to them by Christ. It is given to them for edification, not for destruction, to appoint the assemblies to convene together together in them as often as they judge it expedient for the good of the church. So how often? Doesn't say. When should they do this? It doesn't say. There's a lot of details and particulars that it doesn't say, but it says we need to do it um, and the elders are the one responsible for making sure it happens. So these are some of the, the bare bones principles of Presbyterianism that get fleshed out in our version of Presbyterianism in the PCA, which as an aside, next week, I'm scared to maybe say this because maybe nobody will come back. Um, next week, we're going to dive into the particulars of the PCA and say, what does our government look like based on these principles that we're seeing here? Uh, what is our structure? What do our you know assemblies look like at the different levels of the PCA? So we're going to avoid that today as much as possible, and we're going to dive into it next week. We're looking just at the bare bones theology. Um, comments pushback thoughts on this that that is the elders who call the assemblies that they that ought to happen in the regional and then national level as we'll see and the pca
2: uh is there anything also pulling from the old testament that they they do this because there's more of a top-down leadership in the old testament right acts, right and then there were also other examples of Intermediate courts, yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, so we have this uh, this since early in the after Israel um, came out of Egypt, Moses himself was judging every case. He was the only judge. Um, every issue and controversy. Everybody in Israel brought to him. And his father-in-law, father-in-law was like, hey, this isn't smart. You need other people to help you out. And so they, they at that point, um, initiated uh, graded courts. So they had lower-level courts. And then if they didn't like it, they went up to higher-level courts. And then ultimately, Moses was the final judge uh, there. And if there was a, a hard case, it would come to Moses. So we have this idea of um, going up to different levels of courts, you could call them. In the Old Testament, we have elders, elder-led idea in the Old Testament, um, so it's a little bit different with a theocracy where you have one man who is the king of Israel. Instead of now, we don't have one man who's the head of the church, Jesus Christ is. We don't have one uh, man now, we have courts that Christ has, has instituted, uh, collections of elders to rule the church. So I don't know if that, that's, that gets at some of your, your question there, but uh, no, not entirely, but there is some, there is some um, uh, Old Testament precedent for this. Yeah.
2: And this is a the question better for next week, but uh, are all the members of the councils
1: elders? Yes, that's right. They are. And this leaves it a little bit um, up in the air. The language of the confession leaves that a little bit up in the air, but it says the, um, it belongs to the overseers and other rulers of the particular churches to appoint the assemblies and to convene together in them. So it's the local level overseers and other rulers overseers is the word uh, that comes from episkopos, uh, bishop is sometimes the word that's translated in our, in our Bibles. Usually in the ESV, we translate it overseers. Um, and that's one kind of ruler. And then uh, other people would say another ruler is the elder. Uh, we talk about them in one office. Other people talk about them in different offices. So it's it's getting at that idea. It leaves it a little bit open. But yes, at the higher courts, it is all uh, elders who do that. Um, and just you know, give you an entree to next week. The exciting things we can talk about then. Um, the way it works for the PCA is every teaching elder, maybe you could call it an overseer. Uh, every teaching elder um, can go to the presbytery level, which is the court above the local level session. Every teaching elder, and then every congregation can send two ruling elders. Um, and then once you get over three hundred fifty members or something like that, you get an additional ruling elder for every five hundred members you have or something like that. Um, there's a formula. So basically, every congregation sends all their teaching elders and two ruling elders to every presbytery and every general assembly uh, in the PCA. So we have sessions, the regional presbyteries, and then the national general assembly, and we can send representatives from our ruling elders up. So they're all elders that serve there. Long answer to your short question, sorry. I get excited about this stuff. I love, I love polity, so. Okay. Let's see. So let's go to section two. And here it's speaking of what are these synods and councils to do? Uh, what is the charge given to them by Christ through the scripture? Section two, it belong, a belongeth to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith, and cases of conscience, of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, and authoritatively to determine the same, which decrees and determinations if consonant with, to the word of God are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement to the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word." Okay, that's a lot. Well, let's take it, take it uh, a piece at a time. So these synods and counsel, councils have a ministerial authority ministerial authority. You've probably heard this before. We say all church power is ministerial, so what they're talking of here, and declarative. This is speaking ministerial. ministerially. I'll come back to that in a second. Declarative means that we have the power to declare what God's word says. We have the power to say what God's word says. Clearest uh, picture of that is preaching of the word. It is a declaration. It is an authoritative declaration of God's word. So that's one power of the church. The other power of the church here is ministerial. Ministerial. Uh, we think of the word minister. Um, minister is from the Latin that simply means servant. One who serves. So ministerial is a servant or an agent of another. This is the idea that they are serving on behalf of Christ. They're doing things on behalf of another. They're not taking things on their own initiative and doing, hey, wouldn't it be great if the church uh, started a restaurant chain, right? No, they're doing only those things that Christ has called them to do ministerially as a servant, as an agent of Christ. And it names three things here particularly that they, are, that they have uh, authority to do. One, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience. So controversies of faith, this is uh, the doctrinal and theological issues. This is exactly what the Jerusalem council was doing. A controversy of faith. Is it required that all Christians, all male Christians must be circumcised to be a Christian? It was a controversy of faith. And they determined that, no, that is not true. We do not require that. And the second is cases of conscience, which is an old phrase, old terminology. We don't use it anymore in this way. Um, But it simply means questions of ethics and morals, Christian living. How do I live in in a certain situation? What should I do? And the church is to determine, based on God's word, uh, the ethics for the Christian life. Um, and so those, these uh, controversies of faith, cases of conscience, they're called upon to help sort out for all of us. That's the first one. The second uh, thing they are charged to do is to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of the church. So they are to set down rules. They are to set down directions. Uh, We often say the authority of the church is not legislative. And that's absolutely true. The church is not here to legislate new laws of God, to tell us what to do other than what God's law has told us. But we have a legislative authority, in a little bit of a way with the asterisk on it, uh, to order the church with its government. So for example... We're going to see, uh, in the next section, um, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration. So, if uh, somebody's mad at our session, thinks the session did something wrong, um, you can take that to the presbytery, and the presbytery can look at that and help uh, help figure out what's going on and say, yes, we, we agree with your complaint, the session was wrong, or no, we agree with the session, think the session did the right thing there. So the question is, though, how do you actually get your complaint to presbytery? Do you have a timeline? Do you, uh, what are the particulars? What needs to be in your complaint? All these kinds of details, we do have the authority as the church to set them out because this is an administrative matter. We need to have some clarity on how you get a complaint to your presbytery, how you appeal. If you think the session um, disciplined you wrongly, you can take that to presbytery and presbytery will look at it. And so we have all kinds of um, mechanisms in place. You have to do it within 30 days. And when you do it, your your, um, censure is stayed until it's heard. You know, all these kinds of things. Uh, It is legislative in a sense, but it's administrative. It's trying to help us with this process we call church government. And so they can set down these rules of church government to help us do this wisely, to do this rightly. Um, I will draw our attention to Westminster Confession of Faith uh, chapter one, section six. And it says this, you don't need to turn there, but you can if you want. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence along with the general rules of of the word. So, How many elders go to presbytery? The Bible doesn't tell us, but there is some uh, general principles of Of common grace, of wisdom, of prudence, biblically informed principles that help us arrive to this conclusion that we believe two elders of each congregation should go to Presbytery. Now, is that infallible? No. Is it up for debate? Yes. Could we change it? Absolutely we could if we thought it was wrong, if it wasn't the wisest thing to do. We can do that. And so the assemblies have the authority to to make these judgment calls, these wisdom matters of how do we run the church, these nuts and bolts things. So there's a difference between the big theological principles and the nuts and bolts. And the nuts and bolts, the presbytery and the general assembly can, uh, can change and help us uh, do things in an orderly, um, wise way.
0: Jason, so given that the scriptural evidence for this or support for this, they all involve apostolic presence. Why would you say that the assembly today that is made of no apostles mm-hmm.
1: has the same authority? Right, right. So that's because what
0: we are extending. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if we would have a scriptural support of mm-hmm. non-apostolic assemblies or right. assemblies that do not contain apostles, right. to be able to, uh, you know, determine controversies of the faith. Mm-hmm then I would say this would extend. Right. It is, seems to be an extrapolation of what the script says in Scripture right. without
1: yeah, so the, so the support. So the question is, apostles were there at Jerusalem Council. Apostles aren't at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America. So can we say the Presbyterian Church in America, General Assembly, is authorized by Christ to, to do? Does it have any authority? To so do
0: exactly the same thing, so-
1: right yeah to do to do those same things, yes, so and that um that goes to what's happening at the Jerusalem Council? is this an assembly of of um apostles doing apostle work? Or is this an assembly of elders doing elder work? And I had my brief apology at the beginning for, um, I believe this is a group of elders doing elder work. Because again, Peter refers to himself, hey, I exhort you fellow elders. He considers himself an elder. And there's no sense that when they gathered, they were, uh, as apostles, um, they had more say than non-apostles there. It was the apostles and the elders. And the apostles at that point were functioning as elders in the church. They weren't functioning with divine revelation on this particular issue to come authoritatively and to say it. But as elders, they all sought the wisdom of Christ uh, by His Spirit and uh, the Lord um, led them to this decision that we believe is authoritative and appropriate. Not because they're apostles, because they were elders in the church. So um, people will disagree and my Baptist brothers will disagree with me on that. My congregational brothers will say, no, we can't do it exactly for that point.
0: Because I guess, as it refers to the things that are documented, so so we know that the apostles were uninspired and mm. everything that they said is inspired, but right. it is written and inspired. That's right. But what is documented for us to read and to profit from those meetings is actually written and therefore has to be inspired. And it is inspired and it is valid because it was written by apostles.
1: Right. By apostles, right.
0: right? So it follows that the things that we have written by the councils, in terms of controversy, mm-hmm. the faith, we know that that was inspired. Right. Because it was written. Right. <laughs> so, hence, we don't really have biblical evidence that any elders that can get together can. Uh, Resolve conflicts in the faith in an
1: absolute right. Okay, we'll come to that point. That's an important point. We'll come to that in the next section. Right. Yes. So yes. So we'll come to the next point that makes that exact same statement that um, all synods and councils since the apostles' times may err and many have erred. Right. So since the apostles' time, that council yes did not err. It was infallible and all that. But councils may err today. And so, what are we going to do about that? Is the next question. Um, but I, I think that point's well taken. Um, but, I, but the nature of the Jerusalem Council is, is an important question, and so I'll invite you to read those books I sent out that will argue uh, my case more, uh, more, uh, in a better way than I can.
2: <laughs> um, and I think it was the First Corinthians, uh, head coverings mm-hmm. was talked about, and it's almost appeared in the language to be, well, they have no other practices in our churches. Mm-hmm. It seems to almost be a, a senator, council-type Decision, where it's a plurality of decisions. Why don't we have head coverings today, and why do we say that we just don't have head coverings, but the other ones on women not being in leadership? Right,
1: right. Okay, great question. I'm not going to touch that one today. That would, we would, we would spend our final minutes in that. Great question. We'll talk later, John. <laughs> That's right. So they I was, do.
0: I was writing right to the combination they did. That's right. So the women's would bring them thing. And that's right.
1: Yes. Important question. And I don't mean to demean or or anything like that. Um for important question um unrelated to Yes, that's right. Not tangentially related. It is not unrelated. I'll say it's tangentially related to our topic. So we'll come back here and we can talk about that another time. Um, So they can set down rules, directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and government of his church. So government um, is what kind of I was talking about. Uh, Worship, they can help us um, order our worship. The assembly can say, "Hey, you should worship in these ways and do these things." Now they can't. There's a lot of controversy in the Puritan age when this was written. Uh, they can't prescribe what you can, what you do, um, but they can give us helps to say, "Hey, this is what worship should look like." We have a directory for worship in the PCA. It's not constitutional and binding the way it is in sister denominations like the OPC and the ARP and the RPCNA, um, but it is helpful and very a very good document. Um, so they can speak to worship, they can speak to uh, government of the church and order that. So that's second, and then third, they can receive complaints in cases of maladministration, um, and we'll stop there. So complaints: if you don't think, if you think the session of Redeemer Church isn't doing something right, uh, you can send a complaint to presbytery, and the presbytery can uh, deal with that. Or again, discipline: there's a discipline case that. Um, and didn't go correctly, you can take that to presbytery. Cases of maladministration. Anything you think the, pre- the session has done wrong, you can get the presbytery to review that. And these councils are called to do that, uh, deal with these cases of maladministration. And they're called to authoritatively determine the same. There's real authority in the assemblies. Uh, these decrees and determinations, if uh, determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received and with reverence and submission. So, these are authoritative and they are all to be determined consonant with the Word of God. That is our ultimate authority. Our ultimate authority is not the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America, it is Scripture. And we are called uh, as leaders of the church to do only that which the Word of God tells us to do. And so, when the assemblies are doing things consonant with the Word of God, not just consonant with the things I like, but consonant with the Word of God, we are to receive them with reverence and submission. Not only for their agreement with the word, um, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. So we do believe they have legitimate spiritual authority to make these, uh, to make these decisions, to do these things. Um, and we are called, all of us in our vows, um, to submit to the government and discipline of the church. Of course, it is secondary to scripture, but uh, they have uh, authority given by Christ to do these things. Um, Let me jump to this next section as we just, we touched on a minute ago. Section three, all synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. So this important statement. Yes, we know the Jerusalem council was perfect and inerrant because what they did was recorded in Scripture, and Scripture tells us this was the right thing to do. And so we know they were inerrant in what they did. That was right and good. So since the apostles' times... Uh, All synods and councils may err. Now they are not. Now they were filled with sinners then, but we don't have apostles, and neither do we have um, uh, the canonical uh, um, endorsement of what we're doing, and so we can't say everything the the session of Redeemer, everything the Ohio Presbytery, the PCA, everything the General Assembly of the PCA does is inerrant. We can't say that at all. In fact, we say they may err, and many have erred. And this is an important statement. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. Now, this is a a funny little phrase, and I spent some time trying to figure out what does this mean, that they're not, so it sounds to me on first reading, they're not to be made a rule of faith, they're not binding, they're not absolute, but they're just help. So I kind of take it when I like it, and I leave it when I don't like it. It's kind of what it sounds to me on first reading, right? Well, okay, you're going to, I'll tell you my, my thought process, why I don't think that's ultimately what this is saying, but, so it says the, the councils, their decisions are not the rule of faith. They're not to be made the rule of faith. And where does that language, that, that language comes from someplace else in our confession. Does anybody know where that language comes from? Yeah. What's, what's the second question of the, of the shorter catechism? What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The Bible. That's right. <laughs> the word of God is the only rule. So what, what rule hath God given us? Uh, and a rule here is like a measuring stick, a rule as, as, as authoritatively telling us what to do. The only rule is the word of God. So they're, they're affirming that statement here in the confession. The only rule is Scripture. Right? So we're not saying a council of the church is on par with Scripture. They're denying that, because that is not true. Only the Jerusalem Council is on par with Scripture. We are not on par with Scripture. And that's what the, this is a denial of a Roman Catholic view of church councils. Um, they believe that the church is on par with Scripture and can add to Scripture. They say, no. It is not on par with Scripture, but it is to be used as a help for both faith and practice to help us in our understanding. And uh, I want to pull up this, this um, quotation from A.A. A. Hodge that I think is helpful um, to explain this a little bit more, to be used as a help. So A.A. A. A. Hodge says this, uh, commenting on this section. These synods and councils consisting of uninspired men have no power to bind the conscience. If their judgments are unwise, but not directly opposed to the will of God, the private member should submit for peace's sake. If their decisions are opposed plainly to the word of God, the private member should disregard them and take the penalty. So that's kind of his explanation of what this means that they're used used to be a help in both. They are are authoritative in a secondary sense, but whenever they contravene the word of God, you you are to throw them out. We are not to follow them. Now, if we have a quibble with them, um, if it is not directly opposed, if it's just unwise, for peace's sake, we still ought to go along with it. We can seek to change it. There's avenues for that and we'll talk about next week. But when it's directly opposed to the word of God, we must disregard it and take the penalty. Even if that means Redeemer Church, the PCA is gonna excommunicate me because you know, I believe, because the word of God says this and I have to do what the word of God says, so be it. Right? Take the penalty, the confession says, or A. A. Hodge says, commenting on the confession. Um, take the penalty for the sake of the Word of God. And there have been, um, in, in previous generations, um, Presbyterian ministers and ruling elders kicked out of churches, uh, defrocked, because of their taking the stand for Scripture. And a. a. Hodge says, you must take a stand for Scripture, even if you're going to be defrocked, even if you're kicked out of the church. Uh, it is more important to stand for Scripture. Um, and so help is a little bit, I would like to see the word help in our confession a little bit stronger, but they're getting at something um, getting at something important here saying it's not on par with Scripture, but it still is to be followed insofar as it is consonant with Scripture. Let's stop there uh, for a moment for any, uh, any comments there. Yeah.
0: And even through history, errors that have been made. Mm-hmm. Jesus knows about those, and those are learning opportunities and times to clarify, particularly what Christ is telling his church. So I am very
1: thankful. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, on the last section, I'm not going to read it, but I will say this. Well, no, I will read it. Sorry. synods and councils are to handle or conclude nothing but that which is ecclesiastical. So churches only do church things. Churches only do ecclesiastical things. Churches do not, uh, we're going to get into politics in a minute, but churches don't engage in business. Churches don't do these other things. They do only ecclesiastical things, church things. They're not to intermeddle with civil affairs, which concern the commonwealth. So they're not, to be, they're not involved as political action com- committees. Uh, they're not to do these sorts of things, intermeddle with civil affairs, well, there's two exceptions to that unless by way of humble petition in cases extraordinary so if there's a really egregious thing happening we can humbly petition as the church the church can go to the leaders and say look as a presbyterian church in america you should not do this we believe this in the name of, of christ uh, this is wrong and not good. So, we can do that in and, and cases extraordinary, and of course, men will differ on what is the next case extraordinary. But you can humbly petition or by way of advice for satisfaction of conscience if they're thereunto, thereunto required by the civil magistrate. So, if uh, Ohio said, Hey, PCA, what do you think about this bill? Okay, we can give our advice if they have thought, if they ask us. They're not going to anymore. Um, it's a days gone by. But if they ask, or if this is really an extraordinary case, we can do that. But the distinction here is the church as an institution through its courts versus Christians as individuals. This is not saying individual Christians shouldn't be involved in civil affairs because they absolutely should be. But we're saying the church as an institution should not do that. The church as an institution, it, their job is ministerial and declarative. Declare the word of God and be servants of Christ. But Christians, we are called uh, to engage in the civil sphere. We're called to engage in politics. So as Christians, individual Christians, yeah, go run for mayor. Hudson's looking for one, right? Um, <laughs> go be involved in, uh, in civil government. That's good and that's right. But the church is not called to do that. So that's an important distinction. And we can circle back around to that next week. Any burning thoughts? <coughs> Questions? Great. Uh, okay, one. And then two. Okay,
2: um, you say you're not finding... The part the conscience. I'm assuming so. If they do make a law outside of what is in the church, that would be a no, that would be out against the word of God. That's right. Not in the jurisdiction.
1: That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep.
2: I have trouble with being
0: separate and do not become unequally yoked. Um, how does that apply to being part of
1: civil government? So let me start next week with that question. How about that? So hold on to that. Let's start next week with that. I think, I think that's good. Um, and maybe I can talk to you afterwards, help clarify my understanding a little bit. But let's start next week with that. Um, I wanna, want us to get ready for worship at this point. But thank you for raising that. Let me close in prayer. Father, you uh, are, are good. And we are thankful that by your word, you have shown us Uh, how to run the church, how Christ runs, leads, and guides the church. And we're grateful that we have a great mediator between God and man, a great king and head of the church. May we be found faithful to him, and may your leaders in the church be found faithful in their service to Christ and to his flock. Bless us as we come to worship you, O Lord, in spirit and in truth. May you edify us and remind us of all the gospel promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, go in peace.